Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Morning. Morning, one at all. You know what? Here's what I... I'll tell you two things I love about suspense. Well, one thing I hate, one thing I love. I hate it when I have to live in suspense, but I love dishing it out. So y'all just have to figure it out. Y'all just have to figure out what I'm talking about. Read your socials. Gosh, the sermon's going to be boring anyway. So just pull up your little phone and <laughs> pretend like you're taking notes. You know, the trick is to like switch your screen color to yellow. So everybody thinks it's your notes app. And you're like FaceTiming on my twit face or whatever we call that X thing now. Anyway. Didn't make it into the age of technology, friends. My phone is the constant daily reminder that I don't know things about things. And so, yeah, everyone around me knows, just hand me your phone, dum-dum, and they just, they just do it for me. So, welcome. Hi, I'm Jason. If we don't know each other, that's an awkward way to begin. <laughs> As Larry says this morning, calls out from the back row, which, by the way, Larry owns back there. If, if you even so much as think you can sit on the back row, that's Larry's row. He calls me, hey, Jason Ashley Morris today, so it's catching on. Good morning. My name is Jason Ashley Morris. Anyone else have a, like a extra large whopper of a week? Am I the only one? Maya, did you have a week? Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, like one of those weeks where you're like, wow, is this like the fourth Tuesday of this week already? Some weeks are just heavier than others. We were conversing as, as we do around the service that I just, something's up. This week, it just feels to me like some, work, some weeks the words just flow really, really naturally and some weeks they don't. And it's really not that common for me not to have words. In fact, all my friends are constantly trying to edit the words and cut them back. I spend about half the week trying to write words out of the sermon. I spend about half the week this week with not enough to do an introduction. I just, it was one of those weeks. It felt overwhelming and I'm not sure, it, not not life, right? Not my mental health. It's strong. My family's good. My physical body's as strong as it's ever been. I think what's beginning to feel overwhelming, maybe in the light of what's going on around the world and maybe just where we are in time, I think what's feeling overwhelming is just the church in general. Church just feels hard right now. But anybody else like bobblehead just a tiny bit? Let me know I'm not crazy up in here. With everything going on around us, I guess I'm just feeling like I can sense the creaks in the floorboards of the model of church. Straight talk on a Sunday morning, y'all okay with that? I still believe in this, I still believe in us. I still believe that there is good work to do together, I really do, trust me, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing this. Jesus still makes sense to me, the church still has my whole heart, the gospel still sets me free, I just think a meteor hit the model of church as we know it, and now there's a wobble in the access. Axis, and now the dinosaurs are all gonna starve. You know what I'm saying, too many nature documentaries. Y'all, I try so hard, I try so hard to be normal and watch normal TV sometimes, I just can't. I will go back and rewatch a David Attenborough documentary seven times before I will watch any effing thing on Netflix, sorry. I don't know why I pay for Netflix, except that my kids would lose their minds if I didn't. But it's as if a meteor hit the model of church, and here's the problem, that's the model I trained for. Yeah. I think we're adjusting still. I wonder if you feel that. Nobody has a functional playbook right now for what's going on. We're all just ad-libbing, friends. This is all just impromptu, in case you wondered. You know, asking hard questions about what we're doing and why, though, 
is exactly what we should be doing. And so at least I take some comfort in the sense that if we embrace this season, this is what we should be asking. People who waste a perfectly good global pandemic by not asking hard questions, I don't trust them. I don't trust those people. I'm not having tacos with you. I don't know where your head's at. If you just go back to what you did before this whole thing happened, I'm not sure that's the right approach. We're asking the right questions because we've lost a form of faith that no longer works. It expired, and I think that's okay, and we're not doing that because we've broken something. This is right on cue. This is what we should be doing. We should be evaluating friends and asking and wondering together. I know the ANC board under the leadership of Amy Lambert. You'll know Amy Lambert from the front door when she greets. I know the board is digging in and asking courageous questions. It's been a hard week, honestly, around asking tough questions about our little local church. You know, there was a time before COVID, you may not remember this, but we packed out two services. We were thinking about a third. In fact, the best idea that we had was let's hire a preacher from Chile to come up here to take 100 people away because we don't fit anymore. We were in trouble. We were growing quicker than we could assimilate it. We're asking ourselves some questions as to what has changed. Is it something within our power? Is it something we're not doing well? Is it something we should be doing better? I sometimes miss those days, don't you, Trey? When it seemed like everything we did, people beat down the doors to come in. That's more the 04 Center now than it is ANC, to be honest. Last night was a sold-out show, for example. But part of me misses those days, but only part of me, because friends, that was a different world. It was a different world. Now, I'm aware that church growth and church momentum is more complex than numbers alone. Of course, I'm aware of that, but the winds have shifted across the world, I think, and we will be open-hearted and open-minded as we begin to ask questions around what's working, what isn't, what needs to be updated, what should we hold more loosely. All of those things are questions that we are gonna ask. And we're gonna adjust our sails properly to catch the wind. It's not super easy to tack across the wind. Don't think I'm an expert on sailing. I just went sailing once recently and now every metaphor is about a sailboat. <laughs> I don't know why that is. But if we're gonna adjust our sails to the wind, we're gonna have to do some hard questions. Friends, church is complex, we know this. Theology is too. It never stops evolving, like all things that live and breathe, it's always changing, which is why sometimes when things get overwhelming, a good summary just feels lovely, doesn't it? Anybody else love a good summary? I will kiss the face of anyone who can summarize something complex. Now don't try, because I probably won't make good on that promise, you never know. But I would summarize the time in which we're living this way. I would say the spiritual epicenter of people's lives is shifting. There's still plenty of room for spiritual communities like ours, plenty, perhaps more than ever, I actually happen to believe, especially if they're based on something other than guilt and shame, like get to church or God will be mad, right? That doesn't work anymore. There still is a great future for faith communities. The future is bright. They just need to take on a new shape now. And none of us quite know what that's going to look like. So that's my summary. That doesn't make any of the adjustments we have to make super easy, just to summarize it that way. It doesn't. It's hard work. It just means that it's work that's well worth doing together. Because we are more than we are as individuals. We are wired for community. Friends, it's written in our biology. It comes from the stars, if you must know. So that question percolated in my mind this week as I tried to write sermons from Radio East. Radio East is, does not have a pinhole in the universe, apparently. Sermons don't fall over that way. They only fall at old radio. So there you go. I tried for days to write over there. And I'm like, I got nothing. So I came back to old radio and it started to come together. That's the question. What's the value of a good summary? What is a good summary worth to you? Now, math majors, I'm not talking about cliff notes by which you barely passed college English. I'm not talking about that. I mean a succinct way of understanding the core essentials of a thing. 
There's a ton of things that I personally struggle with, too many to count really, but summary is something that I sort of have a knack for. In fact, one of the executive skills that I teach often in my corporate work in my side career is exactly that, how to take complicated information, usually medical science or sales analysis, how to take that and summarize it succinctly with the fewest words possible. People will, turn, it turns out people will pay a lot of money to teach their executive team how to do that. I did a training for one of my clients this past month where I took all of their quarterly sales reports and we eliminated together every word and chart and graph that we could, that, it, that we cut everything out that didn't alter the actual basic meaning of the presentation. We ended up in some, some cases with one slide instead of 10, sometimes two instead of 20. When you cut it so thin that to take one more word out alters the core meaning, that's how you know you're getting really close to the core message. Now, it's not an easy skill to learn, it's not a terribly easy skill to teach, but once you've seen it, or once you've heard it, it makes intuitive sense. You see the beauty and the power of it. Now, pause. You wanna hear a cool story? That only has one answer, friends. The answer is yes. I cannot believe you just looked at me for two seconds. What is going on here? I was gonna tell you anyway. This is one of my favorite stories from my corporate space. Several years ago, I, hired, I was hired as a coach to a world, I was assigned to a world-renowned physician, a doctor from Los Angeles. Now, he did his whole career in virology and epidemiology, and he began it in the 80s when lots and lots of gay men were rushed to the ER with viral loads off the charts. It was threatening their lives, and no one knew why. Men were dying by the droves, and no one understood it. Every disease, if you go back in time, it was just a mystery until somebody dug in and got curious. Well, at that point, we didn't have a name for what came to be known later as the autoimmune deficiency syndrome or AIDS that gives birth to the HIV, right, epidemic. My client was one of the frontline doctors who actually defined the disease state in a landmark paper that he wrote and published way, way, way back then. When others were prophesying doom and gloom, you know who I'm talking about, pretending to speak on behalf of God, some angelic scientists were actually helping. My client was one of those angels. He wasn't one of the idiots at the microphone. He was trying to figure out what is going on. Well, now, in his field, he's a household name, friends. I won't mention him because that, be, that wouldn't be cool. He's a giant among his peers. He's a legend. And he was notoriously bad at summarizing his curriculum vitae and all the many years of practice that he had under his belt. He would step up on stages and he would drone on about his alma mater and all the papers he was part of. And before you know it, friends, nobody was listening. We have the world's authority on the subject who could not find a summary to save his life, which was ironic because he was, a, he was a global phenomenon. What he needed was a good summary, something to establish his credibility in as few words as possible. And so that's where they hired me. That's where I came in. After coaching him for a while online and then seeing him in person and getting him ready for a major keynote address, here's what he came up with. Now, this was his intro. Check this out. In the first 20 years of my practice among the HIV and AIDS population, I was invited to thousands of funerals of my patients. Thousands. In the last 10 years, I've attended everyone I was invited to because there were only a few. Today, I want to talk to you about the medication that made that difference. That's an intro. That's a summary. In fact, I think it's one of the finest summaries that I've ever coached or I've ever actually heard. It only takes about 25 seconds to speak 56 words, which is what we ended up with. It says nearly everything that a summary should say. I wonder, do you think anyone in the room needed more details or more words before they decided if he was worth listening to? Nope. Did anyone care where he went to college? Nope, it didn't matter. Was anyone questioning his credibility? Nope, not after that. His summary did all the work. 
Friends, that's the power of a summary. I wonder, what would Jesus sound like if you let me coach him? No, I actually don't wonder that. I tried to change that sentence. I was even hoping Catherine would say, that's dumb, take that out. There was no Google.com in there. I'm like, well, then I'm leaving it in. Turns out, Jesus was a natural at, at summarizing things, as today's story illustrates from the lectionary. So we're still in the recorded recollections of Matthew, one of his friends. Jesus is still directly engaging the religious leaders in the city. Hard questions are still volleying back and forth. Now, last Sunday, we worked through the passage where the combined efforts of the Pharisees and the Herodians failed to cause Jesus to trip up publicly. Immediately following that exchange, the scriptures say the Sadducees corner him on some absurd question around whose is she in the new world anyway? It's a super weird question about resurrection and about the seven brother husbands of a single wife. I can't explain it. I won't bore you with the details. I certainly won't try to explain how any of that mattered to the Sadducees. Just know that the Sadducees appeared to have been humiliated by Jesus' response because a few verses ago, it just simply says they quit asking questions and left. So now the Pharisees take their turn and they take their swing at Jesus publicly but the blows just don't seem to land on this guy. The religious leaders keep humiliating themselves time after time. You know, in their minds, I'm sure they were right because they got the last laugh in their minds because they eventually convinced Rome to murder Jesus as a criminal of insurrection. So I think they probably thought they were on track. But let's pick up the story in the last portion of Matthew chapter 22. And I'll just interject some comments as we go. It reads this way. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Now, once again, we have Jesus in the middle of a public interrogation designed to discredit him in front of a live audience, but somehow, those who come to entrap Jesus always end up victims of their own trap, don't they? Well, this time, they give the honors to a lawyer, which makes sense to me if you've ever had to hire a lawyer. They seem to get things done. Verse 36, here's the question that he asks. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Well, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, Jesus responds. Now, Jesus grabs the second half of something from way, way, way older history, Deuteronomy 6. It's known to devout Jews as the Shema. You might know it this way. In English, it sounds like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is the Lord alone. Then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And for whatever reason, Jesus skips the encouragement to see God as a mono-reality and goes right for that familiar commandment to love God with everything available to you. Now, when Deuteronomy was written, the Israelites were at the end of their time in the wilderness, you might remember, just about to begin their occupation of a land already fully inhabited by ancient peoples. Most of those peoples, though, were polytheists. So the idea of a single God that ruled supreme above a pantheon of lesser deities was innovative at that time. It's what set Israel apart from other people of the ancient Near East. Well, the lawyer asks for a single commandment, but Jesus gives him two. He offers a bonus rabbinical opinion to expand on the greatest commandment. Jesus goes on to say, verse 39, and a second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now notice Jesus welds two ideas together into a single answer. The Shema, that part of Deuteronomy, of course, was the expected answer that you might give a legal question like this. It went all the way back to the times of Moses. Any rabbi worth his salt would go there to be safe in terms of answering that question. 
But adding a commandment about how to love your neighbor that was actually written about a thousand years later, now that feels creative, friends. This feels midrashic, almost Talmudic even. Jesus is adding his study and context and color to the tradition surrounding the law and how it worked in society. This is summary and analysis at its finest. Now remember, Jesus is talking to Pharisees now and they believed in the traditions that built up around the law. This time Jesus is lifting from the book of Leviticus chapter 19 from a series of commandments about how to get along in society, this part about the neighbor, how to thrive. Long after the Holy Land was inhabited by the Israelites, this commandment made sense to encourage them to live at peace among themselves. And what is the point? Well, Jesus takes the liberty of summarizing many years of tradition. Maybe Jesus sensed their curiosity. Perhaps he sensed an open heart on behalf of this lawyer. We don't know. But where he goes next is really interesting. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. Now, maybe they were standing around, stunned, trying to figure out how he managed to weld Deuteronomy 6 together with Leviticus 19 into a single answer with this strange and possibly deeply offensive finishing clause upon these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Maybe they just were stuck. Jesus had just taken 613 independent commandments, 365 prohibitions, and 248 positive injunctions. He just took them and summarized them into a simple single flow. Love God and neighbor as yourself. Everything ever written or said about God and what God requires of us to thrive is all right here. It's all accounted for, friend. Love of all, including oneself. Now, we don't know how they responded internally to such an astonishing simplification of everything they loved. We just know this froze them in their tracks. And then Jesus takes the conversation where he really wants it to go next. It's what he always does. It's his turn now to do some asking. And he does that in verse 42. What do you think of the Messiah, asks Jesus? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David, of course. And he said to them, how is it then that David, by the Spirit, capital S, calls him Lord, saying, and this is a quote from the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, it took me till Wednesday to figure out what that meant of this week. I don't know. It's, it's, it's old. It's dated. It takes a little explaining. But here's my attempt. David was a very significant figure in the Jewish imagination. He loomed very large. Other than Abraham, who fathered the nation, and Moses, who led them out of captivity in Egypt and gave them the law, David was their crowning achievement. He was a king who they said had the heart of God. Jesus is reading the context here of the people asking the questions, and all of the Hebrew patriarchs mattered, but there's a reason he reaches for David to make his next point. You see, David represented power, autonomy, self-determination, political freedom, the end of captivity. And the Roman occupation was the most pressing concern at the time of Jesus' public ministry. And yet, as glorious as King David was, even he knew that a messianic deliverer was coming behind him. Friends, even David knew that one far greater would one day be born to deliver Israel from all of her occupiers, internal and external. Jesus is essentially reminding these religious legal experts that even a fully restored kingdom here on earth as David represented pales in comparison to a true internal freedom as embodied by the circle of mutual empowerment, which was my summary of Jesus' message. 
this was a monumental idea and I don't think it sat very well with the Pharisees any more than it sits well with the religious professionals of our day. The final verse of this little passage goes this way, no one was able to give him an answer nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Dads, would you pay extra for that answer? (laughs) This is the point where the Pharisees drop off. They leave him alone now. Jesus had been clear. His summary left out any of the usual ways that they'd grown accustomed to controlling the masses, you see. Love God and neighbor with the same love you have for yourself. That's pretty tight, and that doesn't leave a lot of room for manipulation. Now, last week, we heard the beautiful summary of the teachings of Jesus, spoken by the little crew of accusers. Remember them who were sent to entrap Jesus? They came up with something like this. You teach God's truth with no partiality. Well, I would say that's well put. Simple and true. That's a beautiful summary. That's exactly what Jesus did. If I were coaching that little crew of litigants, I would be proud. That's a lovely, lovely way to put into a single idea the ministry of Jesus. Well, today we have Jesus' summary of all the law and the prophets. Friends, this is worth gold. And when we say all the law and the prophets to Jewish thinkers, that would have just simply meant to everything ever said. Everything Jesus had ever learned and studied could be summarized in a single breath. Love God and love neighbor like you love yourself. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could keep things that simple? One at a time, Jesus dispatches with all of his questioners. The Herodians couldn't get him to openly insult Rome. The Sadducees couldn't nail him down on resurrection. And then he pulls the David card on the Pharisees. Anyway, next week we'll finish this little scene. Once the leaders leave him, Jesus then shifts his attention back to his disciples and the curious crowds. For now, the prosecution rested its case. Love God and neighbor as you love yourself. That might just say everything that needs to be said. Friends, Jesus always finds a way to unify the earthly and the heavenly realms into a single reality. His theology is innovative, but it works. Even his accusers see the logic. Any real love of God will also flow to our earthly neighbor, and that love will always begin with true love of self. They are one and the same in the world of Jesus. Friends, honestly, one begins to wonder if the self is distinct from the neighbor at all anymore, and if either self or neighbor are fully distinct from God anymore. You almost can't tell where the borders are. Belief and practice, they are the same. Thought and action, they too are the same. Religion and how we interact with self and others, all the same. Now go back with me in your mind now and remember how many times Jesus tied action to the movement of the heart. Heaven and earth are a single reality to Jesus. He makes this point again and again. And you might think that this is really good news and for the average person it really is, but not if you're the compliance police. To reduce complicated things like the law and the prophets, this tightly means that they have, of course, spent an entire lifetime complicating things that are actually pretty simple. Love and serve the divine presence you see in everyone, including yourself. This is good news to those who suffer, but not to those who seek to control. 
Friends, this undoes the whole system and they understood that. People who are deeply invested in details and doctrines and dogmas and lots and lots of requirements, those people will always resist summary statements that render their technical compliance essentially non-essential. A religion that tolerates the mistreatment of neighbors, condemned. A religion that wounds and injures the self, rejected. A religion that doesn't see and protect the face of God in all things, useless. What Jesus describes doesn't sound like a religion at all to me, if I'm honest. He's describing something else entirely, I'd say. Do you see why there was so much conflict and controversy between Jesus and the professional religionists of his day? Oh, I do, I do. Their constant refrain, how dare you, Jesus, is related to all of the things he leaves out. This is a scandalous summary. This is an extreme reduction of what had become an elaborate system of statements and requirements that clearly identified what God demanded, what God required, insisted upon in order to be in relationship with the human family, except, friends, none of that was actually essential, was it? Reducing thousands of years of tradition into a simple flow of love from self to others and to God could get a man killed, and in the case of Jesus, it did. You don't mess with King David. You don't tinker with heroes and traditions and reasons why hate of self and neighbor find justification in sacred texts. You don't mess with that. You don't get to do that without paying the consequences. Treatment of self and others is the proof that we love God, friends. The glory and the power of an earthly kingdom, even that of David, could never rival the divine nature of such a simple, integrated life of love. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? These men idolized the glories of their past. They were focused on a particular kind of power their nation once enjoyed. Jesus, on the other hand, was focused on the moment, on the human relationship that they had before them now. David was a symbol of power, a reminder of a gilded age when they were the occupier's friend, but the Messiah would come one day to liberate all things, including the forces that occupy even when those forces live on the inside. As much as the religionists of the time of Jesus despised the occupation of Rome, what they craved was a return to the time when they occupied the Canaanites. And I think that Jesus is saying this, occupation, control, cultural domination, how could they ever outshine the glory of love? How could the restoration of an earthly kingdom rival the power of an integrated life where love flows in all directions, beginning with the self but never ending there? Even David somehow understood this, friends. Our hope doesn't lie in the restoration of anything that came before us. Always be aware of religious movements where the rearview mirror becomes their windshield. Where getting back to the way things were is the stated goal. Be aware don't get wrapped up in those things. You see, friend, the past is never the future. Our hope is ahead of us always, and it lies in a simple, fully integrated, unified life of love, lived now with ourselves and with our neighbors, because that's where we find God. After all is said and done, when put on the stand, this is how Jesus summarizes everything. Love for all involved. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in the summaries and not in the lengthy, exhaustive, never-ending commentaries and addendums and indexed lists of additional requirements by which we might earn the love we 
already possess. Oh, I don't know about you, friend, but that sure sounds nice to me. Ready? I suddenly have no idea what we're doing next. I'm sure I was told and have since forgotten. Um, I had a really long week this week. Did anybody else? I just felt so heavy. Um, and I woke up this morning and was thinking about the words that we were going to say this morning at church and um, how sometimes it just feels like there are no words to talk about what's happening in the world or talk about what's happening in your life. Um, so I'm going to read you some words. <laughs> and um, I don't know, just let them wash over you. Sometimes there are no words for what's happening in the world, so we offer a silence. We offer a breaking from the endless stream of commentary. We offer a pause, not to check out, but to tune in to the love that surrounds you, the love that unfolds you, the love that binds me, the love that holds me, the love that sustains us, the love that creates us, the love that brings peace, real peace, not peace from occupation, but peace in liberation. And it starts in you, let it start in you. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are 